turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. It's the text to which we will examine this Sunday morning. There's probably two big ideas that you're going to need to have your mind, if it's not already flowing with the rhythm of the Scriptures, to be readjusted on. So first, the big idea of where's God at in the world? Like where and when is He working? A lot of times, I think we've got a messed up idea of that. When you listen to our everyday conversations, things go well, like, oh, God was so good. Well, what about when things go bad? What about when you sin? Not is God sinning or leading you to sin, but is God in that? Is he in the process of restoring and helping sinners at their weakest, lowest point? Or is it only when things are good? Like in sports, I want somebody to be interviewed after they just got totally annihilated on the sports field and be like, yeah, but God was with me. You know, it's only when it's like they won the MVP of a championship game, like, yeah, thank God, he, he blessed us. Well, doesn't he bless you in the times of suffering? If you don't agree with that, then you've basically not liked the three songs we've sang so far today, because that's all we've been singing, if you didn't notice. God, you're with us, even when times are tough, even in the precious tender moments of dealing with our sin and other people's sin. Second big idea that you probably need to get flipped around if you don't already have it, what's really the biblical definition of love? What does it really look like to love one another? As a church, we have a church covenant, and it says this, by God's grace, we will walk together in brotherly love and affectionate care, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting one another when necessary. How countercultural is that? Reproving and rebuking. In other words, how much do you have to hate someone to watch them crash and burn in front of your eyes and say and do nothing? That's what our text is about today. It's about dealing with sin in the community. If you were here the last two weeks, you remember that we're talking about dealing with sin in the light of the community of believers. We've been calling them little ones. Today we're going to see them called brothers. The community of Christians, those who believe in Jesus, are called little ones earlier in Matthew 18. Now you're going to see them called brothers and how do we do life together as brothers and sisters and know that God is with us and we're going to love each other even when it's countercultural? Or to put it one other way, I think this text teaches us how to fight sin together and not add to that sin, to not make it worse. What's the way to fight sin together as a community and not make more sins be added on top of it? 
That's Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Let's read it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, typically, I'll take a text, I'll try and sum it up into two or three key ideas. There might be more, four or five. Well, today is much more teaching heavy than sermon heavy. To just give you the heads up, I have nine things I want to communicate to you. Nine. Nine questions for how to confront someone when they sin. I think this passage is extremely pastoral and instructive, and because there's a lot of content in this text, and in this sermon in particular, I would like to offer to you the opportunity that if you're a note taker and you're like, oh, I gotta keep up or whatever, I will put on the website in just a few minutes after the service is done and we clear out, I will put all nine things with the passages, basically the whole outline, and you won't have to take notes like crazy. If, if that's you. Now, if some of you, you want to take notes, I'm not going to tell you you can't, and like look down and you're like, why are you taking notes? That's just the suggestion. By the way, we have a brand new church website, embassychurch.net, and there's a new sermon page spot, and we have a new podcast, and so all this stuff will be on the podcast, it will be on the website. Check it out, share it with your friends. I'm pleased with the way that's all turned out. So hopefully God will use it. Let's dive into nine questions for how to engage somebody who has sinned. Number one, before you engage somebody, I think you should ask the question, is this person your brother or sister? If your brother sins, did you notice that in the text? This is not talking about how to deal with all people's sin in the whole world. That's not the instruction, it's first in the church, which means Let's pause. If you're a Christian today, you believe in the gospel that God's the creator, we are sinners, that Jesus rescues sinners through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and he will come to judge the living and the dead, and that you have faith and hope and trust and repentance. That's you. You know yourself to be in Christ and united to him, and you have your heart transformed in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then that's brothers and sisters. If you're a guest or visitor with us today, welcome, glad you're here. This sermon is primarily teaching for people inside the church. You don't have to leave and walk out, but I just want you to know that this is what it is, and hopefully you'll be instructed. For in fact, the Bible tells us specifically, I have a passage behind me from 1 Corinthians, I believe, and it tells us that we should not be judging those outside the church. And there's a lot of non-Christians that are probably like, amen to that. I think we need more sermons on that point right there. For what have we to do with judging those outside the church? 
Is it not those inside the church to whom you are to judge? God judges those outside the church. This also, I think, helps us understand a very key important point. Jesus says in Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. And this whole sermon text in Matthew 18 is about us making judgments about Christians, about whether they sinned or not. Should we do that or not? Answer, yes, we should make judgments about sin. But we should not judge those outside the church. That's not our business. Let God through the Spirit do that work. So question one, are they even in the church? And may that apply to your life. Are, are you in the church? Are you a brother or a sister? Do you know that? You can know. So do you. Question two. Have they actually sinned? This may seem obvious. The text assumes that they sinned, but I don't think we should assume it. Maybe your judgment is a little off. Maybe your understanding of what sin is a little off. It says, if your brother sins. In fact, all steps in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 are if statements. If, 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 if in each step. So if this happens, then this. So let's not assume that if they sinned. Now, you'll read it in this text, and there's good reason to believe both ways. But I just want to be honest that the earliest manuscript copies do not include the phrase against you. So it means that we can be confident that the text is about if a brother or sister, and the word Adelphoi there, that's brother, it's not just talking about, well, we only care about if men sin, women, they just never sin, or women, who cares about them? It's brothers or sisters. That's what the word Adelphoi means, and it can be used in both contexts. So brothers or sisters, if they sin, here's the instructions. Now, if the phrase is there, and again, there's I'd say I'm about 50-50 if the phrase is actually what Jesus meant to say or not based on the evidence. And so that's why I'd say it could be more specific to if they sin against you. And the reason I bring this up is because one time I was in this heated discussion with some pastors, like heated in a good way, like good, robust theological discussion trying to sharpen each other. And everybody was loving each other, I think, right? And at one point I made the point about how in church community, we should confront each other in sin. And he's like, well, Matthew 18 only says, if they sin against you. And I was like, please. Galatians 6.1, which you'll hear in just a second, says anyway. So, like, we should still confront each other in sin, even if this text is talking about if they sin specifically against you. Either way, I think we should take home, have they actually sinned? Do you have a Bible verse that you could look to or a key principle from God's word that you'd say, this is clearly a sin? Or are you observing something that you're frustrated about or upset about with their personality that you think, well, I just kind of think they've got a lot of pride in their heart? Not a good time to confront somebody. What are the manifestations of pride that make it clear and obvious to you that the person has sinned? Not just, well, I'm looking into their heart and they seem really selfish. Or they seem really greedy because they purchased something. Well, maybe somebody gave that to them. You don't know. Don't, you don't know people's hearts. So make sure you know that there's sin. That's question two. Question three. This is a big question. This is one of the hardest questions. Should you go or should you just let it go? Should you go and tell them their fault? See that in the text? Go and tell him his fault. 
or should you just let it go? Some people have sinned, but some sins are not as big as others. Look at the text behind me. This is from Jesus, and he says to the scribes and the Pharisees that they're a bunch of hypocrites. Apparently, Jesus is okay with judging people that say they're followers of God, and they're really not following God. And look what he says. You're doing a really good job at tithing your spices, but you have neglected more important, weightier matters of God's law. You should have done the one, but you have neglected the other, justice and mercy and faithfulness. In other words, you're doing a good job going to church, doing a good job tithing, but you're not even loving your wife and kids. You don't even show basic hospitality. You're rude to people all the time. Like that's more important than you just showing up to church. Do show up to church. It's commanded. Hebrews chapter 10. Don't give up meeting together. A lot of people can do that. But God demands that we love God and love each other. And there are more important, more weighty, more serious matters in God's word. So don't look at like, well, all sin is sin. If it was a little sin or a big sin. If you catch somebody committing adultery, that is more significant than somebody who had a lustful thought. It's more significant. They're both adultery. Sin is sin but one is worse than the other. All of you, I think, intuitively know this, but the fact that Jesus makes it plain, I think, should hopefully put us on good ground. So that's one thought you need to keep in mind about, should I go or should I let it go? How important is it? Another thought to consider. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I think some sins, you should just say, that's where this person is at right now. God's at work in their life, and I'm just going to be patient with that and just love them and not be on them like crazy about every little thing and demand more than what's realistic for where they're at at their stage of discipleship. Realize that sometimes we're just going to love people and not be all over their case and expect them to be 10 years down their Christian life when they're 10 days in. And this happens a lot. So this is why we can be patient and love each other. I want to point out another passage in 1 Corinthians 6. And this one is quite intense to think about. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law, meaning the courts, the lawyers, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So I've got a a grievance against somebody. Am I going to go make a lawsuit against them or am I going to deal with this in the church? That's the issue that's being presented in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then listen to this last phrase. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Sometimes it's better for you 
to just suffer the pain of a sin than go and try and take it to a lawsuit. Why not? Some things you could just take the hit for and be like, it's fine. It's not a big deal. I'll just absorb it. Yes, so-and-so stole something, but it's small, and they're early in their Christian life, and that's, it's okay. I don't need to go do a lawsuit because they stole $50. That would make the witness of the church look bad to the outside world. So that's something to keep in mind. Some sins are more important than others. Some sins just need to be loved. Just love covering them is what I mean. Another thing you need to keep in mind when you're trying to decide which sins should I approach someone on is that some sins must and always be addressed because they are destroying people's lives. This is primarily what I think Jesus has in mind in Matthew 18. But here's a couple scripture passages. Jude 1, 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. So somebody's life is metaphorically burning up in front of your eyes. And you're just like, well, I could get some water or pull them out. But I'll just look at them. That's, that's what's being referred to here. Like, don't, what are you thinking? James 5, another passage. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, consider this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. And then how about this kind of covering of sins? The same phrase, cover a multitude of sins, but this time the covering is not by just saying, listen, I just know that it's a smaller matter and I can just forgive it or or not worry about it, but it's too serious of a matter that we need to let these sins be covered by going after them. So realize that sometimes covering over a multitude of sins is by rescuing people from further sin so they don't burn themselves up. Or what did we just hear in Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, just up in our passage? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountaintop and go in search of the one that went astray. So I want you to be thinking about, should I go? Should I just let it go? And you need to consider what's going on in that person, which then brings this point into mind. Do you actually care about the other person? Should I go, or should I let it go? If you don't really care about the person, you should just let it go. If this is about bitterness, about revenge, if this is not about empathy, love, or compassion, then you need to let it go. You need to not address it in that manner. You need to wait until God is at work in your heart to address sin. You're not in a position. Look at the way Galatians 6.1, do we have that? Yes. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And then how should we do it? With gentleness. If you're bitter and you're looking for revenge, and it's like, well, they sinned, and you're going to go after them, you're not going to be gentle. So do not address sin in the church unless you're able to do it gently, with compassion, with empathy. So that's number three. Some thoughts about whether you should go or whether you should let it go. Question four. Are you alone when you first go? When you first address a sin, you see a sin? Are you going alone? Are you talking to that person that has sinned first? Notice the text. 
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you were just to take the phrase, go and tell him his fault between you and him, is that sufficient? Did you get the point? Just between you two. If you were to just take the phrase alone, just go and tell him his fault between, or alone. Tell him his fault alone. Do you see the double emphatic way Jesus is talking? Between you and him, by the way, I mean do it alone. Let me repeat myself. So, go alone. Why? Because you could be wrong about the facts. You think somebody sinned and you go talk to them, you're like, oh, yeah, jump to conclusions there. Maybe as they explain themselves, you realize they didn't really sin. You should go alone because gossip is adding more sin to the situation. How are we going to fight sin together and not add more sin? By not quickly going around, telling our friends, texting, and then doing it in that spiritual way. Well, I need you to pray for somebody. Let me tell you a prayer request about somebody that I'm really burdened by. And all you're doing is gossiping. This does not help, friends. Go and tell them their fault alone. Probably the most startling part of my study this week was when I realized that the phrase you have in your Bible, go and tell him his fault, is one word. And the word means to expose, it means to convict, it means to bring something to the light. How intense is that? If a brother sins, convict them. I mean, I don't know if that's the tone which Jesus is talking, but like, it's serious tone. Go convict them? Go make sure that they see their sin for what it is? Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. So if you're going to do that, you don't want to expose somebody's sin and embarrass them publicly if there's no need to bring it out to other people. This is sensitive material. So, before you go on and point out somebody's sins to anyone else, we don't want to slander or gossip, so we go alone. Now, I want to make one little caveat. This is a good teaching point, pastoral moment. There are some sins where you might go to the police first. If you see abuse in our children's ministry, if you see some sort of public sin where it's already known, then it doesn't matter if it's between you and him alone. It's already public. So there are going to be some exceptions or cases where because of public sin or because of the severity of the sin, you must go and tell the police authorities so that you don't get arrested. Especially some of us like myself, I'm a mandatory reporter. And so if I see some of these activities or behaviors, there's going to be some cases where I cannot follow Matthew 18 as like, well, I'm going to go and confront this person with this sin. It's, you need to go to jail now. So just realize that that's part of this point. That's number four. Are you alone? Number five. So should you just give up if they don't listen to you? So you went... You confronted somebody in love with gentleness, like you prayed a lot. You really tried hard to have the best interest of them in mind, and you're so heartbroken by the fact that their life is falling apart before you, and you love them too much, and you went and you said, listen, I'm so concerned about this. And you just poured out your heart, 
and your love toward them, and they just stiff-armed you, and they said, no, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Get away from me. Get out of my house. Get out of my phone. Don't talk to me anymore. What if you get that response? You just go, well, I tried. I mean, what if that's what it was like for God in your life? It was just that easy. Nope. Stiff arm. Nope. But what if through the church, God is making his presence known and the power of the Holy Spirit through us to be like Jesus and pursue and chase after and be persistent to a degree. Don't just give up after the first try. Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Do you know that sometimes we're hard-hearted? Sometimes we're stubborn? Have you ever repented from something and it was after maybe the second or third time it was brought to your attention? I mean, if every time I listened to my wife right away, I don't think we'd have any marriage problems. It would just be like, wow, she's right so many times. But I gotta wait till somebody else tells me and then like, oh. And then Christine's like, well, I told you that, right, you know? Should you just give up when you tell somebody that they're in sin and they don't listen to you? Jesus says no. But if he or she does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It is not an option if you want to obey Jesus to just throw up your hands. Remember, question one, who are we talking about? A family member. We're talking about a brother or sister. We don't give up on our family that quickly. We're talking about a person that you know is in serious sin and is destroying their lives. It's a weighty matter. We can't just cover this with love. Be like, well, we tried, but let's just cover it with love. This is a matter that you're saying we can't let go. And in that circumstance, we must move on to this step and bring others to help us. The only response that Jesus allows is for us to be more concerned about the state of someone's soul. It's far worse than what you thought. You were hopeful that by confronting them in their sin, they might repent, right? Turn, see, oh, man, I know. That's not what they did. You were hopeful, and then you realize, this is deep. This is worse than I thought it was. And you're gonna need help. So what should you do next? Number six. You need to ask, who can I get to help? Who can I get to be the two or three witnesses to help? Now there's debate, and I think both of these are actually wise things because probably it doesn't cover every scenario. Who are the two or three witnesses? Are they A, the two or three witnesses that actually witnessed the sin, so then you witnessed the sin, and then you need to find two or three other people that also witnessed the sin, and then that way you've got three people that are saying, listen, we're in agreement here that you're in trouble and we love you too much. That's option A about how to read the two or three witnesses. Option B is that maybe sometimes there's no other witnesses of this sin, and it's just you, and you need to take two or three other witnesses to witness your confrontation or to be a mediator to make sure that, hey, we had a little dispute, we talked about sin, we disagreed on whether that was sin or not, and then now we're going to bring in people to help us figure out, well, maybe it wasn't really a sin. Or maybe I'm a little oversensitive about a certain matter and that now we add more community and other believers, it'll help us think through this better. 
I think both of those options are actually just wise, practical counsel because there's going to be times where maybe you've got two or three witnesses and those witnesses actually saw the sin. Good candidates to ask for help. But maybe there's times where there are two or three witnesses and they're just going to witness the conversation and be more like a mediator. This principle comes from Deuteronomy 19.15. We just read it earlier in the service, so you can note that or jot that down. It seems like that's what Jesus is talking about here, about crimes for any wrongdoing must have two or three witnesses before a charge is established because of what's about to happen in the next step. Before you bring it to the church, there must be credible witnesses. If you read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says you should never make accusations against an elder pastor in the church unless you have multiple witnesses. And that the church shouldn't hear them if it's just from one single person. So if somebody starts accusing me of fraud or stealing money or sexual abuse or some sort of you know, misconduct, and it's just from one person, the church doesn't hear it until there's two or three. Read 1 Timothy 5 and you'll notice that that principle is played out in that case too. So I want you to think about this practically. Be thoughtful about who you might ask. Are you just going to bring random people and be like, well, hey, you want to help me confront someone in sin? I mean, ideally it would be people that they know, good friends that they love. It shouldn't be like, let's, well, one person didn't work, let's bring in the muscle and like, let's tag team and really get after them and really just intimidate them. You're a sinner. Still gentleness, still gentle. It's two or three gentle people, two or three loving people. Don't get the people that you think, man, they, their spiritual gift is confrontation. You know, they just love to confront. That's probably not the person to ask. We want to de-escalate sin. We want God to be at work in sin, not to make more sin happen. I'd especially suggest that if there's an argument between two people, there's sin, and the other person's calling them out, and now they're disagreeing as to whether that was actually sin or not, sometimes it's helpful to bring in these third-party people that aren't on one side or the other. Mediators. Whether it's an elder or pastor, it could be. It could just be another church member. The text is not saying pastors anywhere. You notice that? Never talks about elders. But elders can be involved, especially at this stage of the process. Which brings us to question seven. If then they do not listen to the two or three witnesses and the second step of trying to get them to turn from their sin, you should be asking the question, who is your church? Because Jesus says that we still don't give up on them. Try one, didn't go well. Try two, did not go well. Well, give up. No, Jesus is persistent in pursuing his sheep when they go astray. Go back up to that text right there with the parable of the lost sheep. He says, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, in other words, and if the sheep is going to come home, if you're successful, to get a lost sheep. Sometimes you're not successful. Sometimes it's step one, it's step two, it's step three, and then it's step four. But here we are with question seven in the third step of the process. The question you should be asking is who's your church? Because Jesus says, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia, is the original word. It means to gather it means an assembly. It means a group of people that have come together for a common purpose. It is not a religious word whatsoever. It is a common word to talk about a meeting, a gathering, an assembly of people. So what are we right now? A gathering. 
In fact, this is a fun little, fun little note for you all. Every Sunday, somebody gets up here, for the most part. I'm sure there's some weeks where it doesn't happen, but pretty much every Sunday. Welcome to Embassy Church. We have, anyone know? We have gathered today, fill in the blank. Every week at the top of your bulletin, there's some sort of, we have gathered for. Because by nature, we are a church, and a church is a gathering. Therefore, we have gathered for a purpose. Why have we gathered today? To exercise the keys of the kingdom. So just so you know, that's why that's there. Every week, to remind you of who you are as a church. We are an assembly, and we are a gathering. It is very important that you notice yet again, Jesus does not say, tell this to Peter. Because remember the text that was just read to us in Matthew 16? On this rock I will build my church. He's talking about Peter. But then in Matthew 18, he's talking about the whole church. If there is the last and final judicial authoritative step for sin in God's kingdom, it is not with one single man. It is not with a pope. Tell it to a gathering. Tell it to your gathering. Who's your church? Don't tell it to the apostles, to, the, to Peter, to the first pope or the second pope or whoever. They have no authoritative rule in the teaching of Jesus. It doesn't say tell it to the pastors or the elders or the overseers or the deacons or any office. It says the assembly, which begs a lot of questions. Like, what does that mean? And here's what I think we can hopefully all agree upon. Ready? Alone, step one. Two or three more, step two. Some sort of representation group that's bigger than two or three. Like, each step gets bigger in terms of who's involved. Is that clear enough? So, at Embassy Church, we've read this as the gathering is Embassy Church. So, it would be you talk to the one person alone, you bring in a few others, they're still not repenting. We then, at a members' meeting, we're not going to like get up and say, Welcome, we've gathered this morning to exercise the keys of the kingdom. By the way, I have something to share about Mr. Nate Prater. And he has sinned last week, and we all need to decide right now if we're going to keep him in our membership right in this moment in front of everybody. We would call a members' meeting. We would talk about it. We would give you advance notice. All of those things, we think, would be in the spirit of church discipline actions are not fast. They're slow. And that if anything, don't you see the persistent patience of Jesus to give every opportunity for repentance? That should be the spirit to which it finally gets to the church. And then the church collectively decides, is this person one of us? Are they still a brother or a sister? And this begs the question, what does it mean to be a part of a church if it doesn't mean being a member of the family? What does it mean to be a part of a church if it doesn't mean being a member of a community? If being a part of the church is simply attending and sitting in a weekly event, and you could come and go as you please, and nobody knows who you are, how does Matthew 18 work? So what Embassy has tried to do for the last six years is instruct you on why meaningful membership matters and why it's biblical according to the teaching of Jesus. And it's not because we have some sort of tradition we're trying to keep per se. It is because we want to be faithful to these words and several others like it. So the church should pray. The church should pursue. 
Because notice the church hears the case and then doesn't make a decision yet. There's four steps. Alone. Bring two or three. Tell it to the church. It's not done yet. Well, we told it to the church. Hands up, we're done. No, again. The pattern is, so then the church collectively prays. Then the church collectively pursues. Then the church collectively loves, texts, calls, emails. I love you too much, repent. I'm so grieved by what I hear is happening. Can we talk? Can we meet? The church comes together around this person as an entire assembly. And then, if they don't listen to the church, that brings you to question eight. How will your relationship change with this brother or sister if all four steps are pursued and they still want nothing to do with repentance and faith in Christ and behavior that would model what we see in Scripture? It should change. Jesus says these words. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you. And what's interesting is that this you here is in the singular form, not plural form. This is not be to you, church, but to you. Remember you started this, one individual? If a brother sins, you singular go tell him his fault you started this so now it's coming full circle to you and every other church member this person should have a new relationship with you no longer brother or sister but as a gentile or tax collector i know that word in language is not common like how often you go around and be like well this person's a church member and this person's a gentile like we don't use that language a lot so here's the simple language are they in or are they out Are they a part of the family or are they a stranger of the family? Are they a Christian? Are they a non-Christian? It is not saying that we have the right to determine and tell people who's Christians or not. It's just saying the church has the keys of the kingdom to let in and allow eat at the Lord's table of the bread and the cup those who are true brothers and sisters. This is the parallel text If you're ever wanting to really do a deep dive into this topic, you need to read 1 Corinthians 5 along with Matthew chapter 18. And here's a short passage from 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We just read this text earlier. Did you remember that? Don't judge those outside the church. We judge those inside the church. Judging those inside the church is appropriate. That's because we need to make a judgment by establishing the use of the keys. Keys Open doors, close doors. Lock them, unlock them. We have the keys to the Lord's table. We have the keys to baptism. We have the keys to the fellowship of membership in the church, whatever that might mean in terms of each local expression. We have those keys because we have Christ. And by having those keys, we should exercise them. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So this is what they're saying. I'm a Christian. 
I love Jesus, I love to repent of my sin, but I'm going to continue sin, and he, he gives a list. Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, rivalry, drunkenness, swindling. If somebody has one of these kind of known, expressed, outward sins that's obvious, in that particular chapter, it's a man who's having relations with his stepmom. And he's saying, that's gross. The outside world is looking at that behavior and saying, that's not acceptable, but the church is allowing this as acceptable and normal, not cool. With such a person, do not associate with them, do not even eat with such a one. Now, I believe that the eating reference is because the community in 1 Corinthians and the early church ate meals together on a regular basis. And those meals were a part of the Lord's table. And so when he's saying don't eat with such a one, it means we have a, a family meal on a regular basis. So imagine our potlucks. We can't just act like, hey, come to our potluck and sit down and let's have fellowship and let's just talk about the bears and the weather and how school's going and what's going on with your kids or my kids and let's have some food together and then let's take the bread and the cup. No, not appropriate. Not appropriate to have that kind of meal with somebody who is saying, I love Jesus. I want to live however I want, even if I've been called out with four different steps by the church for my sin. Not cool. Purge the evil person from among you. Don't have table fellowship with them. Do not communicate that everything is okay. Do not allow them to take the Lord's Supper. Something must say, you're not right with the rest of us. And it's not because we're looking down on you. Remember the teaching from last week. That's why it was so foundational. We're not looking down on like, well, we're better than you. No, we're in a different position than you are because we're sinners who are trying to repent of those sins. You're being confronted with actual sin that the whole church has agreed upon, and you are not repenting. That's the difference. It's not like we're better. It's just that we're currently being led by the Spirit to repent, and you're not. Are you guys starting to notice that, like, yeah, the world would not like this sermon? Like, you'd have to have the Holy Spirit to be listening to all of this and be like, this is good. This is good teaching. I like what Jesus is saying. Question nine. Last, final question. Why? Why should we do this? Jesus gives this explanation for that question. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered, the literal phrase here is, where two or three are brought together. This is not the same word as ecclesia. It is the words to bring two people who are apart and bring them together in the name of Jesus. When two or three are brought together under the banner of the love and the message of the gospel in Jesus, I'm there. I'm there when you go alone. I'm there. You might feel like, I don't like confrontation. You're not alone. You're not alone that you're the only one that feels that way. A lot of people don't feel that way. But we don't have a choice. Sin with loved ones is too significant to just let it keep going. So therefore we go, but we're not going alone. Because when two come together and agree, and right there you gain your brother you, you've gained, you have won your brother back. Things were not well, but now they're well again. Jesus is there in that midst. Jesus is in work 
in that person's life. The Spirit of God is alive. Whenever you bind or loose, whatever you tie or untie, it's a a metaphor image to say that, hey, what's being done on earth in the name and the message and the authority of Jesus, it's as if it's happening in heaven itself. That these two are not distant, far-off realities, but they're overlapped, connected realities. Too many of you think of heaven's way out there, and then earth's here, and we're kind of like, you know, Jesus had to come, and the, the, the gospel is that God is with us now and here, and that there's now a link between what's happening in the heavenly realm and what's happening on earth. And this text is telling you, you can do the work of God on earth. You can experience the presence of God on earth now by obeying the teaching and the words of Jesus. This is not just about prayer meetings when two people get together and pray at Starbucks. It's that and so much more. When two people agree on what the word of God says and says, yes, we're going to obey that. When that happens, the spirit of God is at work every time. Even when you take it for granted, two of you get together and you have a little Bible study one-on-one together, two of you are gathered together and you read some of the Bible and you say, let's do this this week. God is in that. God is in the midst of that. And every time that happens, God is blessing it. I like the idea of saying it. He's got your back. God Almighty, the ultimate judge. When you're in confrontation, there's times you're like, man, how many times when you tell somebody something that they've done that's wrong and they don't go, well, I've got something that you've done wrong. Like it doesn't always go real well. But Jesus is in this. He's with you. He's supporting you. He wants to see this through. He's got your back. God is not some far-off, distant deity. He knows. He cares about his sheep. Look at the very last verse of verse 14. It is the will of my Father who is in heaven that not one of these little ones should perish. This is the will of God. This is the commands of Jesus. This is what he's doing in the world. There are times where it might get ugly, but God is in that ugliness as we confront sin. There might be times where you're like, that was a rough meeting. That just did not seem to go well. Oh, you have little faith. God is at work. God is at work in your own heart to confront the sin. God is at work in the person's heart that it's either getting harder or softer, one or the other. And the steps of process in Matthew 18 will bring this to light. So let's consider Jesus in the gospel and think about how every question I've asked you shows the tender love and care of Christ. He Jesus asks the question, are they my brothers or my sisters? And he says, yes, I love them. I want them to be in my family. Does he know if we have sinned? Oh, he knows that we have sinned way more than you and I know about our sin, even our very thoughts and motives. He knows that our sins are too great and too destructive to let them go. So he has the question faced before him. As he sits in the heavens, before he comes to the earth, he has this question, should I go or should I just let it go? Praise be to God. He says, I'm going. I care too much about these brothers and sisters of mine. He came alone and then he brought the witness, the paraclete of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. He lovingly and gently exposed us of our sin and he did this without once sinning himself. We did not listen. 
but he did not give up. He continued to pray and pursue and pray and pursue. Even when we nailed him to a cross, he prayed and he pursued because he wants to invite us to a meal so that our relationship with him would be forever changed. He wants our relationship to no longer be stranger, but friend. No longer enemy, but loved dear one. No longer dead, but alive. No longer lost, but found. This is why Jesus came, and this is what Jesus does. So if you'd like to see Jesus at work in the world right now, get involved in a church. Confront some sin with gentleness. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you do in his name, you're seeing Jesus on the earth. So do you want to see him? Do you only want to see him when things are good? Or do you want to see him even in the mess of your life? My experience is that that's when he's doing his very best work. And when he's the closest and the most tender. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. The reason why we should follow these commands. Because you, Father, you sent your Son as a rescuer of lost and astray sheep. And so we desperately need this teaching right now, God. We could have the doctrines all lined up in a row, and this church could be an unhealthy mess if we don't obey these teachings. So we want to first thank you for them, and we want to plead and ask God, protect us, help us, change our hearts, and lead us to lean into your presence, to want it more, even in the mess of our life, God. May we want to be near Jesus and obey him and honor him. So we pray, God, that this is what our community would be marked by. And we look around us, God, and we look around the church scene in the U.S., the church scene in the northwest suburbs of America, and our hearts break. These things are not being done. Your word is not being honored. It is not being elevated as this is important. And then we see the devastation, God, the devastation of churches that don't follow these commands and oh, the travesty, the mess that we deal with every day. In this community, by listening to story after story for the last six years that embassies existed, we've only heard of heartbreak from churches that don't take these words seriously. So we're just praying, God, Would you help us be a light to be a place where we can love each other in this kind of way? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.